Well, turn with me this morning to Book of Roman, Romans, chapter 12, and we'll read verses 1 through 2. To simplify things and help you remember, the title of the sermon this morning is The Gospel. That way, if someone asks you what I preached on, you can say the gospel. No, we are looking at what Paul has to say the gospel is and what it isn't. So let's look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1 through 2. This is God's word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for just the joy of worship. We thank you for the chance we have to be as your people assembled in the name of Christ together, worshiping our King and worshiping our God. As we come to your word through a spirit of worship, we pray that you would speak to us this morning, that you would speak through me, be with my feeble lips, and enable me by your spirit to articulate your word in a way that would prick our hearts, would change us, would transform us as children of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't know if you remember how cold it was this past Christmas Eve. I do, because uh, for several hours on Christmas Eve, and at least until about 1 p.m. on Christmas Day, I was putting together one of those metal uh, climbing domes that children like to play on, and I was outside doing it. It was a gift from uh, my mother-in-law and father-in-law for our children. And I remember taking several breaks during that period of time to go inside and warm up and try to warm up with a cup of coffee. And through countless hours of frustration, reading and rereading the instructions, finally at 1 p.m. on, on uh, Christmas Day, the climbing dome was finished. I took a step back, looked at it, and I was very satisfied had that sense of deep satisfaction that you get when you've worked really long and hard on something and you're finished, it's done. Then we called the kids out and my oldest son, William, immediately asked me to climb on it with him. And I thought, climb on it? Why would I want to do that? Here I have spent all this time putting it together and to me the most marvelous thing is that I'm done. I don't want to climb on it. Well, to some extent, the Apostle Paul has just spent 11 chapters giving us the most beautiful discourse, the most beautiful section of Christian doctrine, arguably in all of the Bible. Chapters 1 through 11, he details our justification by grace through faith. He details how that we who were sinners, Christ died for us in our stead, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, all the great theology, all those wonderful doctrines of our faith that we have come to cherish and love are detailed for the most part in the first 11 chapters of Romans. And you might expect him to take a step back and look at this beautiful edifice of Christian theology and say, 
I'm done. But he doesn't. He doesn't because he knows that the purpose of a climbing dome is to be climbed on. It does no good if I simply stand back and tell my kids, admire this beautiful structure. No, that defeats the purpose. And so the purpose of knowing all the sound doctrine that the Apostle Paul presents to us in the first 11 chapters of Romans is ultimately building up to this one moment where there's a transition in his thought in chapter 12, verse 1. And we see this transition by one little word, the word therefore. And as often as has been said before, if you see the word therefore, you ask, what's it therefore? And it's there because ultimately Paul is making a transition away from good biblical sound teaching to the what if or to the what now. What do we do with all of this glorious truth, all this glorious doctrine? Well, there are three things that uh, the apostle points our attention to this morning, which will take time to dissect. The first is he talks about worship. That it's the logical response to our salvation. Secondly, he talks about the world, which is a rejection of the gospel. And then third, he talks about God's will, which ultimately is the result of the gospel in our lives. Now, it's telling that the Apostle Paul addresses the audience as brethren. But I would submit that really there are four different groups of people that Paul is writing this epistle to. And I believe sincerely there are four different groups of people in here this morning. The first is those who believe the gospel and your life is daily being transformed because of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. The second group are people who don't believe and they don't know it. Perhaps they've never heard. Perhaps they've not taking time to think and consider what the truth of the gospel is. The third group are people who know they don't believe. They've been around church. They've been around Christians to know the gospel, and they know they have rejected it. They do not believe. And the fourth group, which is perhaps a bit more challenging, are those who do not believe the gospel but think they do. And the reason why I say this fourth group is a bit more challenging is because at times throughout our Christian walk, I think we vacillate between the first group, those whose lives are being transformed by the power of the Spirit, and the fourth group, those who do not believe what we say we believe. It's not enough, as the Apostle Paul shows us, simply to know sound doctrine. That's important, and I do not want to detract from that, particularly in a day and age in which what you believe seems to be relative, even among evangelical Christians. Paul makes the point very clear in 11 verses of Romans or 11 chapters of Romans that what you believe is very important, but he doesn't stop there. Instead, he tells us what we do with our belief, what we do, how we respond to the gospel. So he begins his appeal by looking at worship, the response of the gospel. Paul says to the church of Rome, present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, a sacrifice was common throughout the ancient Near East, but it would have been particularly common among the, Judeo, uh, the Judaic world, the world of, of uh, the Jewish faith from which Paul came, uh, because in the Old Testament, sacrifices were a mode of worship. All sacrifices. There were various kinds. There was the sacrifice for transgression, which ultimately Christ satisfied. So it's not that sacrifice to which the Apostle Paul is alluding. 
Instead, I argue, and we see this here in the first verse, particularly as we get to the end of it, that Paul is admonishing Christians to present our body as a thank offering, a sacrifice of praise to God. Now, why would we do that? Because we've just been told the good news. The news that we are sinners, isolated, separated from God, and that nothing that you and I can ever do will make us deserving of his favor. And then we're told that Jesus, the Son of God, came and died in our place so that you and I might be adopted as God's dearly beloved. That's the good news of the gospel. And what is the appropriate response to this good news? Well, the Apostle Paul says, present your body. Give it as a thank offering to God. Surrender it to him. Not only are we called to be a living sacrifice, but we are also called to be a holy sacrifice. And in the Old Testament, holiness is defined as that which is set apart for God. And if something is set apart for God, it cannot be used for any other reason or else it will become desecrated. And we see this in the temple worship. If somebody has an item that's to be used in the temple, it is made holy, it is sanctified, it is set apart. And if you use it for any mundane, ordinary task, for any reason other than to offer worship and praise to God, then ultimately it is desecrated. And so as Christians, we cannot be a holy sacrifice so long as we have one foot in God's kingdom and one foot in the kingdom of this world. So why a sacrifice? Why a sacrifice of worship? Well, Paul gives two reasons. One, because of God's mercies. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. What are these mercies? Well, he just spent 11 chapters telling us what those mercies are. They're unmerited. They are undeserving. It is God who sent his only son to die for us while we were yet sinners. And he takes the righteousness of Christ, the perfect obedience of Christ, and he applies it to you and I. So that when he looks at us, he sees the perfection of Christ. That's the mercy that Paul is here referring to. It's because of this mercy, ultimately, that we should give our body as a living sacrifice. Our proper response to the gospel is not to try harder, but gratitude. And this is where Paul begins. He says the proper response to the gospel is praise, is worship. Secondly, we are called to be a sacrifice of worship because a sacrifice is a spiritual worship. At least that's what the ESV says. If you look at the original Greek, spiritual worship is a translation of two Greek words. The first word, uh, worship, is the word latreia, which is where we get the English word liturgy. And it means literally worship to God. The second word, which is translated in our ESV as spiritual, is lagikos, and it's where we get the English logical. And so for this reason, the King James Version says it is your reasonable service. Well, I think that perhaps a better uh, sense of the text is the combination of those two by saying it is our reasonable or logical worship. When we hear the gospel, oftentimes people's response when they go to church is to walk out the door and say, I'm going to try harder. If that is your response, you have not heard the gospel. If our response to the gospel, even if it is preached as it should be, if our response is, well, I need to try harder, 
then we have not heard the gospel. The gospel, the resort of the gospel in the life of a Christian, according to the Apostle Paul, is that we present our body as a living sacrifice, a reasonable worship set apart for him. Is it possible that the reason that our worship is weak because our understanding of the gospel is poor? Well, let's look at the second point that the Apostle Paul makes. He says that the world is ultimately the rejection of the gospel. Tim Keller, in his book, Center Church, states that there are actually two ways to reject God. You can reject God by rejecting his law and living any way that you see fit. Or you can also reject God by embracing and obeying God's law so as to earn your salvation. He goes on to identify these terms in a way that, um, uh, for the sake of, of today's sermon, we'll call one moralism and the other secularism. One is depending on our own ability to accomplish and obey the law of God for our salvation, somehow making us more qualified to be children of God. That's moralism. And then the other side of the ditch, secularism, rejecting the law of God altogether and allowing the values of this age to define our reality. Many of us, we hear preaching and we hear sermons about being worldly and worldliness, and we immediately want to think of worldliness as behavior. And that's part of it. But worldliness is much more than simply behavior. To focus on behavior alone indicates that we are misunderstanding the gospel. Because what the Apostle Paul is referring to when he says, do not be conformed to this world, is ultimately a reality that you and I live in every day, which is contradictory to our identity. We live, the, the Greek word there for world is the Greek word ion, which is where we get the, uh, the, the English phrase aeon or eon of time. It's, instead of it being a cosmic world like you and I think of when we think of the planet Earth, it is an age. That's what Paul is referring to. He says, do not be conformed to this age. But then he goes on to tell us to be transformed. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But when he says that the world or this age is something that we should not be conformed to, ultimately what he's addressing is the water that you and I swim in. We are born in a natural mode. That mode is something that on our default setting, if we are not transformed by the word of God and the Holy Spirit, on our default setting, it is easy, it is second nature to be conformed into. It happens almost without realizing it. Paul illustrates this mode, the mode of this world or the mode of this age in the first chapter of Romans, the 25th verse and also verse 28. Speaking of those who have rejected God, he says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Now notice there the relationship between worship and mind. This is the theme that Paul picks up on here in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. There's a relationship. Because they did not worship God, God gave them over to a mind that is ultimately debased, and it, is, it characterizes this age, this world. Paul also condemns those who rely on their faithful service, their faithful obedience to the law of God as 
qualifying them for being accepted by him. He does this in chapter 3, verse 20, where he says, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So Paul also, which is where Tim Keller got his comment, Paul also states that the world, this age, is characterized by these two sides of the, uh, of the road, these two ditches, if you will. One being moralism, I can do it myself, I can pick myself up by my own bootstraps, I can obey the law of God, therefore making me somehow more deserving of his favor. And then secularism, a rejection of the law of God altogether, and relying on the values of this age to define my reality. Both, Paul says, are rejections of the gospel. Now, for you and I who live in what has correctly been identified as a post-Christian world, a post-Christian society, it's difficult sometimes for us to realize what it means to be conformed to this world. So I want to use an example. Uh, most of you could probably put your hand in your coat pocket or perhaps your pant pocket, maybe your purse, or maybe it's in your hand right now, uh, and find a smartphone. It's something that we have become attached to, accustomed to in our culture. Uh, some people consider it an indispensable part of their daily life. However, there's research, and I'm referring to an article just uh, recently that appeared in the Journal of the Association for Consumer Research, written by Adrian Ward, that comments, and this is what he says, and I'm quoting, he says, the results from two experiments indicate that even when people are successful at maintaining sustained attention, so they're not looking at their cell phone, their hand's not on it, they're careful at, at sustaining their attention on someone or something else, as when avoiding the temptation to check their phones, the mere presence of these devices reduces available cognitive capacity. In layman's terms, what the researcher was saying is that any time our phone is near and we can see it, even if we don't look at it, it reduces, now these are secular uh, researchers, by the way, it reduces our cognitive ability, our ability to process information, our ability to remember even short-term information. Well, Eric Andrew Gee, another writer for the Canadian Globe, says that if you add it all up, American users spend somewhere between three and five hours a day looking at their smartphones. Now, this is an average. Some, it's much more. Some, it's much less. Now, the staggering thing is that when this research came out, it didn't surprise anyone. In fact, I don't know if there's anyone in here that's surprised by this information, but it's stuff that, whether rather explicitly or implicitly, we already know yet we can't put them down. Why? Well, for many of us, we use them for social media. There's a variety of other purposes, but social media, which is one primary reason that people use their smartphone, um, it, the impact is more than just intellectual, it's actually physical. We see this because Eric Andrew Gee in his article continues to say that if we have lost control over our relationship with smartphones, it is by design. Again, a secular researcher. He says, in fact, the business model of the devices demands it because most popular websites and apps don't charge for access. The internet is financially sustained by your eyeballs. That is, the longer and more often you spend staring at Facebook or Google, the more money they can charge advertisers. Now, Sean Parker, who was the ex-president of Facebook, confirmed this recently uh, when he stated in an article that um, the 
social media platform was designed to hook users with spurts of dopamine. This was intentional on the part of the designer. It's a complicated neurotransmitter that's released when the brain expects a reward or accrues fresh knowledge. And so you can see how that having a device in your hand that gives you fresh knowledge every second or every time that you seek it, and, and you're constantly looking at Facebook to see who all liked your picture, you can see that that type of thing creates a reward so that dopamine is triggered in our mind and it is, quite literally, a physical response. And then Sean Parker went on to say, you're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. The investors understood this consciously and we, now this is the former president of Facebook, did it anyway. Now, my purpose is not to preach against smartphones. Obviously, I have one. However, the point that I'm making is that if companies, if presidents of companies, if researchers can exploit a human weakness in order to entice us with a device that we know is reshaping our mind, but either are unwilling or unable to do anything about it, then how much more sinister is the God of this world, the God of this age, the enemy of our soul when it comes to enticing us, molding us, and shaping us into the mode of this world instead of to the image of Christ? It is not something that is naturally occurring in the life of a believer apart from the Word of God and the work of the Spirit for you and I to be transformed. Why? Because on a day-to-day -day basis, we are bombarded with a slew of things that are begging subconsciously for us to be conformed into the mode of this world. It's inevitable at work, at play, at your house. When you wake up at 2 a.m. and you look at your phone to see if, what time it is and, oh, you got a notice on Facebook, so you spend the next 15 minutes scrolling it to see who all liked your, your post. What does it say about our heart? What does it say about our priorities? There's a weakness there that companies, marketing companies are exploiting. There's a natural tendency of the human heart to want to cling to secularism and moralism instead of the truth of the gospel. Now, let me go to Paul's third point, which is God's will, the result of the gospel. If we are not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed, let's unpack that a bit. Paul says the result of the gospel in the life of a believer is to not only know the will of God, but to do it. The church of Rome, as well as the church today, we must move past a cerebral consent to the truth of Christian doctrine. Why? Because it is possible to know everything there is to know about God, this side of eternity, and be as lost as Job's turkey. Glad some of you were listening. Paul's appeal to the church in Rome is to be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The Greek word for transform is the word metamorpho, which is where we get the English metamorphosis. And only three other times is it used in the New Testament every time to refer, or two of the three times, to refer to Christ as he was transfigured atop the Mount of Olives or the Mount of Transfiguration. A supernatural change took over him 
so that when they saw him, they knew that something supernatural was happening. Metamorphosis, the English Webster's Dictionary defines it as a change of the form or nature of a thing or person into a completely different one by natural or supernatural means. We are probably most knowledgeable or, or most aware of this term through the chrysalis, a butterfly. And there's no observable reason, none that I found, why an ugly, fuzzy caterpillar engorging itself on green leaves should spin a chrysalis and emerge something completely other. There's no observable, reasonable explanation why from that chrysalis a beautiful butterfly should come forth. Now what's detrimental and even sad is that there are times when the chrysalis never opens. The caterpillar dies inside. I saw a um, YouTube. See, I do use my smartphone. <laughs> saw a YouTube video this past week of, of a schoolteacher dissecting a chrysalis in which the caterpillar had died. It went through the functions. It went through all the proper channels. Something inside of it told it it was time to stop eating and build a chrysalis. And so it listened. But it never came out a butterfly. Metamorphosis never took place. Transformation was never there. You see, it is possible to build a climbing gym and never climb on it. It is possible to sit Sunday after Sunday after Sunday under the preaching of the gospel and your heart never be transformed. It is possible to go through the motions day in and day out of a believer when inside your lifestyle betrays what you say you believe. And this is what the Apostle Paul was getting at. This for him is the heart of the gospel. Not knowing the right thing, but being the right thing. Because, and see, sometimes you might have expected me to say doing the right thing, right? Because our expectation is that if we know the right thing, we'll do the right thing. But then what becomes the means of our salvation? Our deeds? No, the gospel is if you are the right thing, if your heart is transformed, then you will do the right thing. And it's never the opposite. That's a misunderstanding of the gospel, which unfortunately has been bought into hook, line, and sinker by the evangelical world. And we wonder why our churches are dying. We wonder why we show up Sunday after Sunday and the people that you run into on Monday seem no different than anyone else in the world. It's because intellectually we've consented to the gospel, but no transformation has ever taken place. Paul states that the renewal of our minds the transformation that takes place in our thinking enables us to discern the will of God. In other words, transformation is not simply a mental transformation. It is a transformed life. Robert Canlish, a Scottish Presbyterian pastor, once said that believers, to believers, transformation by the renewing of the mind is not the ultimate end which the Holy Spirit seeks in regenerating and renovating our hearts. 
It is the immediate and primary design of that work in one sense, but we are created anew in Christ Jesus, and that new creation is what the Holy Spirit first aims at and affects. But we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And he goes on to say the essence of a good work is doing the will of God. And so the result of the gospel is ultimately that we know the will of God and that we do the will of God. Now, as believers, we are tempted to stop at each step along the way. Once we know, we are content with the knowing. Once our minds are transformed, we are content with these momentary epiphanies. But for the one who is believing the gospel, the transformed mind will always lead to a transformed life. So how do we orient our lives around the gospel? How are our minds, therefore our lives, transformed? Well, the answer is twofold. One, God's word. And two, God's spirit. An emphasis on orthodoxy, which is believing the right thing, without an emphasis on the work of the Spirit in the heart of the believer, will result in nothing more than very educated people. But the transformation of the gospel, which happens when we realize that there's nothing we can do to make us deserving of the favor of God, and that we are called to be a new creation in him ultimately leads to transformation, even if we don't have all the answers. Only the spirit that raised Christ from the dead can truly transform our lives. However, this transformation will always result in the knowledge and the power to do God's will. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, where Paul said that we all, with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, that's the fourth time he uses, the, or the, the word is used in the New Testament, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes, this transformation comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So the transformation can only come through the Word and through the Spirit. Now, let me return to a statement that I made earlier regarding the four types of people here this morning. I would hope that by now the other three types have heard enough, God willing, to prick your hearts. But it's the fourth group to which I would like to speak more candidly. There's an old English saying, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And according to the Pew Research Foundation, among evangelicals, which is what most of us are here this morning, among evangelicals, now I'm not talking about mainline Protestants, I'm talking about the average person who sits next to you on a Sunday morning, among evangelicals, 48% of evangelicals that were polled in 2016 say that right and wrong are relative to the situation. 37% say they read their Bible once monthly or never. 40% say their view of right and wrong comes from some source other than the Bible. But then get this. 75% say they have a feeling of spiritual peace at least once weekly. (laughs) 
What's transforming your life? What forces are shaping your life? If we do not spend time in God's word, if we do not rely on the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, then regardless of how much you know, regardless of how much you have Romans 1 through 11 memorized, ultimately, the transformation will never take place. It is the work of the Word and the Spirit in the heart of a believer that will bring that transformation. That's why Paul said, if the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, then He will transform. He will quicken your body and we will be transformed into His image. Now as I close, I trust that you hear my heart this morning. And even as I preach this, I'm preaching to you as much as I'm preaching to myself. Because you see, I realize the reluctancy. I realize the satisfaction or perhaps the feeling of spiritual peace that comes from sitting back and looking at the climbing dome when it's finished and thinking I've done my job. But you know what? My son will never remember, probably, the hours I spent working on it. He will never remember the frustration that I encountered when the pieces just didn't go together right. What he will remember is the time I spent with him climbing. Now, I give that as a simple illustration to say it's not enough to build the gym. It's not enough to build the dome. It's not enough to know the right thing. Our heart must be transformed. Let us pray. Father, as we hear the gospel, we pray that we would not simply be hearers of the word, but that we would be doers as well. And we pray that Christ would be formed in us, that our hearts would be transformed, that we would not simply be content with the knowledge of the truth, but that we would allow the work of your spirit in our hearts to change us supernaturally into people who reflect your dominion, your divine rule in our lives. Father, give us your grace, give us your mercy, for we are weak and we are frail. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.